Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church of Imperial Valley. We would love to help you plan your visit, so we encourage you to visit our website at www.cccciv.org for service times and our events calendar. Or get the app. You'll find the Christ Community Church IV mobile app in your app store for Apple or Android devices. Hosea chapter 1, we want to get into that this morning, and I'm going to read the first chapter all the way through chapter 2, verse 1, because that's really where the Hebrew breaks. So that first verse of chapter 2 actually fits with the section of chapter 1. So it says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, or Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take yourself a wife of whoredom or prostitution and have children of whoredom or prostitution. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said, said to him, Call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by the sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Israel, or Judah rather, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And chapter 2, verse 1, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you have received mercy. We're going to look at that this morning. Lord, we ask for your blessings upon your word. May our hearts be attentive. May our hearts be moved. May your word accomplish all it's sent forth for. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning a new series this morning out of the book of Hosea, as you know. Hosea, actually, the name means salvation. Name means salvation, and it's the first of what is known in the Old Testament as the minor prophets. There's 12 books of the minor prophets, and Hosea is the first one that launches that section off. And it's not really what you need to understand. Whenever you hear the word minor prophets, it's not really referring to minor in message, but in length. 
Many of the minor prophets are shorter than the book of Isaiah. All of them are shorter than Isaiah and Jeremiah and your major prophets. And you want to approach this with the same reverence and the same seriousness that you would with a Jeremiah or an Isaiah. I hear Isaiah quoted often. I hear Jeremiah quoted often. And you rarely hear about the minor prophets, but yet they have a major message to them. Now, if you go back in time and you go to about Genesis chapter 12, we see the beginning of the story of Israel when God calls Abraham out. He calls him out of his land and he promises to make a great nation out of him, a nation in which all the families of the world would be blessed through. And we know that that nation, Israel, was to produce the Messiah down the road. And as God called out Abraham, they began their journey, and they ended up in a land called Egypt. God sent them there during a famine. There's about 72 that went down to Egypt, Jacob and his family. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. They go down to Egypt, and God provides for them. There's security there. There's provision for him, and at the same time, he populates the nation to over three million people, and as they grew, they became a threat to a new pharaoh, and the pharaoh said, I've got a fix for this. We're going to enslave them. So he enslaves God's people, and there comes a moment in history where God intervenes, and that's in Exodus chapter 3 as he calls out Moses, and he intervenes, and he says, I've heard the cries of my people and he delivers his people from their slavery to Egypt. He brings them to a place called Mount Sinai, and he says, you're going to be my treasured people, because that's what God wants. When he created humanity, humanity was to be his treasure, his pride and joy, that he was to love his people, and his people were to love them. He was to enjoy their presence, and his people were to enjoy his presence with them. And all of that began to go south as they got into the land of Canaan, what was known as the promised land. God delivered them from something, and he was bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where God's blessings were going to exist for his people. And as they got into the land, long story short, they had their first king, Saul, at one moment in history, who was king over united nation at that time. Saul was the people's choice, really. He was a man of the flesh. He defaulted in his position with God. God removed him and raised up King David. David began to conquer the land militarily, and he brought him to their prominence. And then comes his son Solomon when he died. And he was the last king under the United Kingdom. Solomon had brought it to glory. There was a prosperity that went on in the land. God's people were blessed. They had a temple. Solomon built this fabulous place that the land still exists in Israel today, the Temple Mount, where his people would go and worship God. But then after Solomon died in 931 B.C., the kingdom split. There was a civil war that took place. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, ruled the south known as Judah. And then Jeroboam ruled the north, which was the ten tribes of Israel. It became known as Israel. So when you're reading in the Bible after the death 
of Solomon and you see Judah at times and you see Israel at times, you've got to know that there's a divided kingdom there. That Judah is speaking of the two tribes of the south, Judah and Benjamin, named after the larger tribe Judah. In the north, sometimes you'll see it referred to as Ephraim because it was a larger tribe but it was known as Israel. So you had this divided kingdom going on, and they were under two different rulerships. Jeroboam wasn't doing well. Rehoboam wasn't doing well. The people began to drift from God, and as God would see his people drifting, he would always raise up prophets to speak his word to them. When God's people drifts, God is so gracious to actually give a word to his people. He raises up people where he speaks through to call them back to his covenant relationship with them. And so as we see this playing out in the Old Testament, we see Israel going off straying from God. We see Judah eventually straying from God, and God begins to bring judgment. But it never comes without warning. There is always warning. God always sends a flare off the bow of the ship to try and turn it and going and heading into judgment. At this time, we see that Israel is now going off into worship that dishonors God, and God raises up prophets, and he raises up a man named Hosea. Hosea, and it's interesting because when you read about the prophets in the Old Testament, it's not like they were these trained men. I mean, Amos was a farmer. There's not much said about Hosea, but he raises up these men, and he gives them his word. And that's what I want you to focus on first as we go through the chapter. I want you to see, first of all, Hosea's calling. Hosea's calling. He is God's prophet. We see that in verse 1, how it takes place. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea. Now understand, that's the spiritual background. Whenever God raises up a man to speak for himself, the word always comes to them first. You need to understand that, that this is not man's idea. When God's prophets speak, this is like the very oracles of God. It is God speaking through them. Whenever you read in the Old Testament about the word of the Lord coming to somebody, it is God giving a word to one of his prophets to stand up and to boldly proclaim what God puts on their hearts. And that's the spiritual background to this. The word of the Lord came. That term is used 109 times in the Bible. Again, it's not man's word. When we read this first chapter, there's some things that are startling to us, but you got to remember that God is ultimately the author. God is the one in control. God is calling the shots. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 1 in the New Testament, verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right there it tells you that these men, these prophets of God, never spoke on their own. They were men filled with the Holy Spirit. They were men that received a word from God and began to translate that word of God to the people around them, calling them back into that covenant relationship with God because that's really what he wants out of his people. He doesn't desire judgment. 
He doesn't desire to bring judgment on his people. He desires to restore his people. He desires for them to love him once again because he wants that loving relationship with him. So the spiritual background of this is God bringing his word to his prophet to convey that to the people in hopes that they would turn from their wicked ways, and we find out that that doesn't become the case. Now, the historical background of all of this is seen in the fact that we see that it is the son of Barry. We don't know much about that. We just know that he's Hosea's father. There's no other information given about this, so we're, we're in a haze about who this Hosea actually was, but we also know the kings that were reigning. And what's interesting is he mentions four kings here. He mentions Ahaz, Uzziah, Jotham, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and he mentions one king in Israel, and that is Jeroboam, and I found that interesting to me because Hosea was raised up to prophesy against the people in the northern kingdom, not the southern kingdom. Hosea was a contemporary of Isaiah, and if you read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying to the southern kingdom, but God also raised up prophets to the northern kingdom, and both of these guys lived at the same time. There's not much that we know about why would God mention four of the southern kings and only one of the northern king if Hosea is prophesying against the northern kingdom. Why would that be? And the only thing that we can come up with is probably highlighting the Davidic covenant that God made a promise that there would be a king we know to be Jesus Christ to sit on the throne and that the Davidic kingdom is highlighted, but also that the four kings mentioned in Judah would also trigger the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to read those as well, that they would read God's word, even though this prophecy was given to the northern tribe, that they would be open to reading it themselves and understanding the man what God's word was given to the northern tribes is going to be true of us. And that's what you need to understand too, is that when God gives a word, when God gives a word, it is eternal. That what applies in the Old Testament applies to us too. There may be certain civil laws that don't apply to us, but when you look at the prophetic word, much of that applies to us today, so you just can't dismiss it. So the historical background is dealing with the northern tribe primarily, and a king named Jeroboam is mentioned, and many people think this is the first Jeroboam when the kingdom was split. It's not. This is Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the first was a wicked king, but Jeroboam the second was just as evil and wicked. In fact, in the Bible, we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 24, it says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. That was the capital. And he reigned for 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. How many know that leadership in any given nation can cause people to be astray? We sometimes don't understand the trickle-down effect of what takes place in leadership. That's why I tell people, whoever's in leadership of the country, 
means a lot because they're setting policies in place that will affect daily life. Well, it was no different back then when we see Jeroboam. He was a very evil king, very, very evil, very wicked king. He did some atrocious things, and yet he proclaimed to know the Lord, the living God, Yahweh. And that leads us to the social background of all of this because it's important also to understand that socially, these people thought they were okay. Why? Because economically speaking, they were prosperous. In fact, it speaks in 2 Kings how Jeroboam had made them prosperous. He secured the borders and prosperity began to come to the land. And modern day archaeology actually backs up how prosperous this country was. Archaeologists come into a scene and do a land and they begin to dig. And they've got what's called strata. And as they go through each stratum as they're doing their archaeological digs, they determine what time periods that this is actually speaking of. So discovering the pottery of the day, discovering how their wood was made, their furnitures and their houses and things like that. And during the reign of Jeroboam, it was a very, very prosperous time. And I think that was deceitful to the people. That's where the deceitfulness lied. They still thought that they had God's blessings. You know, you have to look beyond that, friends. When it comes to material things, does God give us? Yeah. But oftentimes we forget who gives it to us. And we get caught up in the things and the materialism no different than Israel was at the time. Even though they became a prosperous nation, spiritually speaking, they were off the deep end. They were worshiping a God called Baal. And God said, that was a no-no. I am the living God. I will provide rain for the land. I will provide your crops to grow up. So oftentimes in the scriptures, you see rain withheld. You see the famines that take place. And the people go in a time of need and desperation. And that's one thing that doesn't happen generally. When we're prosperous, there's no desperation for the Lord. For instance, look at America and how prosperous America became through the years. It became militarily the most powerful nation in the world. Prosperity-wise, it had the greatest economic system, the GPD. Everything you look at about America was nothing but prosperity. But how many people today are really desperate for God? How many people do you know that really are pursuing God? chasing God. See, in Jeroboam's day and in the day that Hosea prophesied, they started to serve Baal. They never quit serving Yahweh. Well, they did, but they went through the religious activities of what Yahweh required. So the deception was that they could hang on to Baal and they could still go to the temple to worship. They could hang on to Baal and they can do their daily stuff because they compartmentalized all their worship with God. And so they said, man, like Sunday mornings, well, for them it was the Sabbath that we can go to the temple, we can worship, we can pray. But then Monday through Saturday, it was a very different story. They were looking to Baal. Baal was the god of fertility. And the way they would worship Baal was through sex. They had cult prostitutes, both men and women, and people would worship Baal on the level of sex. Sex really became the God for them. It wasn't about Baal. They looked to him as the God of fertility to bring rain, but it was really a people that was unleashed by their own passions. 
As they were unleashed by their own passions, they got deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into their sin. But really, they were under self-deception because they said, look, we're a prosperous people. We're doing okay. We've got money. We've got jobs. The economy's thriving and everything else. And yet God was getting ready to bring judgment. And that leads to what we're going to talk about now because when you look at the command of what Hosea is required to do, it is mind-blowing. It is absolutely startling, I think, when some people begin to read it and what God requires. And what happens is Hosea's family becomes an illustration of their relationship with God. And that we begin first with Hosea's wife. When we look at Hosea's wife, we're looking at God's people unfaithful. That's what God's intention is here. Watch this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom or a prostitute and have children of whoredom. Now, some people deny that this is actually part of God's word. They say somebody slipped that in. There's all kinds of theories out there because you see this command here. And I got to admit that God's command is unorthodox. It is unorthodox here. Go take for yourself a prostitute, right? Whenever we're growing up and maybe we grow up in church, the last thing we would think of is taking a wife as a prostitute. We've got dreams and we've got aspirations and we, we've got these plans in our heart and everything else. But how many of you said, that I would go and I would marry a prostitute. That isn't part of the game, but yet God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and it's caused many students of the Bible a problem. How could God even ask a man of God like Hosea to take a prostitute for a wife? God would never do that. It has to be going against his word. But when you dig deeper in the scriptures, there's a word concerning marrying a prostitute when it comes to priests, but not prophets. For instance, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7, it says, They shall, speaking of priests, not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Leviticus 21, 9, And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Leviticus 21, 13, and he shall take a wife in her virginity. This is the priest, a widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute. These he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people. And there's specific commands for priests, but there's nothing concerning a prophet. And God tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. That is an unorthodox command. But what's mind-blowing is Hosea's extraordinary obedience to God. In verse 3, it says, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. He goes and does it. Now, it's easy to take some of the commands of God and to fulfill those, but what about when they go against your common sense? Now, this is forbidden in the New Testament, by the way. The New Testament says you cannot be unequally yoked. So some of you guys out there that may be thinking you can go find somebody and, uh, you know, marry them for the moment. And devote, no, no, you're not to marry somebody who's an unbeliever. 
And yet, he's told to go marry a prostitute. I mean, it would make sense to me if Hosea, don't marry that woman, she's immoral. Or to us, you know, don't marry that person or break up with that girlfriend of yours or break up with that boyfriend of yours because he's on drugs or he's an immoral person. That would make sense to me. But here he is commanded to go marry a prostitute. And so he's told to go do this and and yet his obedience is extraordinary to me. And that confirms that he is a man of God. Thanks for tuning in for Love, Live, Lead, the broadcast ministry of Christ Community Church in Imperial Valley. Christ Community Church has campuses in El Centro, Calexico, and Brawley with services in English and in Spanish. Your kids are going to love our kids' church. Plus, we have a lively youth ministry and young adults group. You're welcome to call the church office at 760-337-9400 with your questions. Or leave us a message on the Christ Community Church IV mobile app, the cccivy.org website, or direct message us on social media. We are really looking forward to meeting you. So again, the website is www.cccivy.org or call 760-337-9400 so we can plan your visit.